up to the book of Proverbs. If you are using the Pew Bible, it's page 625. Why Proverbs? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Proverbs opens by laying out its aims, its audience, and its approach. If you've ever been up too late and you've seen the paid advertising on television for different exercise programs, you know, P90X, Peloton, whatever, they always say, follow our diet, our exercise program, and in 90 days we'll give you, you know, muscular body, whatever, you know, Charles Atlas, you've seen it in the comic books, that, these kinds of claims. Well, Proverbs opens in the same sort of way. It says, here's a program, and if you follow this program, you'll see results. Not a six-pack, not biceps, not Charles Atlas. The results you'll see are wisdom. Here then, Proverbs program laid out in verses 1 through 7 as we read them together. You'll see here, it's Proverbs aim, Proverbs audience, and Proverbs approach. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is God's word. Proverbs' aim is to offer wisdom. Its audience is the simple, the youth, and the wise. And its basic approach is the fear of the Lord. But before we get to these, we need to reflect for a moment on verse 1 and the book as a whole. We're going to be in the book of Proverbs at least the Sundays I'm here through the summer and possibly into the fall. We'll see how long uh, we keep going with Proverbs. And so it's good to get a, a sense of the overall book of Proverbs. The book introduces itself as Proverbs. What's a proverb? A proverb is a poetic, pithy, punchy, pictorial statement. It's usually one verse, two lines, a sort of short summary. You see in verse 6, it uses a number of synonyms. We need wisdom to understand a proverb, a saying, or parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. Some parables are like, or uh, uh, some proverbs are like parables, a little short story in two lines. Other proverbs are more like riddles. They need to be worked at. In fact, the book begins by saying we need wisdom even to understand the Proverbs, and yet we need the Proverbs to gain wisdom. And so it's a sort of paradox that we'll get into here. Paul, in his letters, compares different parts of Scripture to spiritual milk and to meat. If we're thinking in terms of our diet, what is Proverbs? Proverbs has been numerous times compared to being like hard candy. Right, kids? You get a jawbreaker, you don't chomp into it, or you'll lose your teeth. Maybe that's your plan, you're trying to get some uh, tooth fairy money, but a jawbreaker, what do you do? You suck on it over time. And I was never one of these kids, but I had friends who they'd keep them in a plastic bag on the shelf and keep working the jawbreaker you know, for a month, that kind of a thing. That's, that's what a proverb is like in terms of our spiritual diet. We need to suck on them, we need to work them. We reflect on them, we keep coming back to them. 
The uh, biblical scholar Gerhard von Rod notes that proverbs are in almost every culture. Every language has sets of proverbs. And proverbs in every culture function or, or serve to codify traditional wisdom. We don't really even know where proverbs come from. It's just things everyone knows, right? Uh, let's test this out. A penny saved is? Everybody knows it. Where does it come from, though? A penny saved, a penny earned. Where do we get it from? 1758, Benjamin Franklin in his almanac wrote, a penny saved is a penny got. That's pretty close. But 100 years before that, the poet George Herbert wrote, a penny spared, or spared is twice got. And a few years later, Thomas Fuller, a historian, wrote, a penny saved is a penny gained. Uh, it's, it's likely that the saying predates even Herbert and Fuller. So we're using a penny saved is a penny earned. We all know it. But it's at least 500 years in the English language that we've been saying that. And we say, well, of course, everybody should know that. It, it's, it's common sense. It's obvious, right? It's a proverb, a pithy saying. We need proverbs to guide us in the moment. Okay, it's important to have bigger ethical frameworks, but no one sits down and says, well, categorical imperative is I should only do myself what I believe is right for every other individual to do, and if I do this, then this. Right? No one sits down in the moment making a decision and goes through all this moral calculus. What do we do? We say a penny saves, a penny earned. I'm not going to buy that. Right? We need these maxims to guide us. Well, the Proverbs proper, the short statements, these, these sort of what we think of as a classic proverb, begin in chapter 10 of the book of Proverbs. The first nine are an introduction. 1.1 one, one says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. That seems straightforward. The book was written by Solomon. But at the beginning of the Proverbs proper in chapter 10, verse 1, again it says, the Proverbs of Solomon. And even that language is a little bit ambiguous. What does it mean for a proverb to be of Solomon? It could mean that he wrote it, or it could mean that he collected it. Well, that section beginning in chapter 10 contains 375 of these short proverbs. Then in 22.17, we read, Hear the words of the wise, and that's a plural noun, so the wise men, the wise women. It's sayings of anonymous sages. And that section, that's about two chapters long, there's numerous parallels to an Egyptian wisdom text, the instruction of Amenope from the time, uh, that was written in the time of the judges in Exodus, or uh, rather in Egypt, before the time of King Solomon. Chapter 24, 23, again, these are the saying, also sayings of the wise. So apparently there's another collection of sayings from wise men and women. 25.1 then says, these are the proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transmitted or wrote down. So apparently there were some other uh, proverbs from the time of Solomon that people kept saying, and about 200 years later during Hezekiah's reign, Hezekiah commissioned some scribes and said, we've got to get those written down so people remember them. 30 verse 1 says the words of Agur, son of Jaca, an otherwise unknown wise man who has a chapter of Proverbs. And then 31 verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, uh, who's an unknown king. He's not a king of Israel or Judah, but a foreign king. And it's a set of Proverbs from this foreign king, but we're told it's an oracle that his mother taught him. So even the, the, those Proverbs don't come from Lemuel himself, but rather from his mother. So interestingly, we have a portion of scripture there explicitly written by a woman. How do we put this all together then? What do we make of this? It says the Proverbs of Solomon, but we have all these other headings, five other headings spread throughout. I think it most likely that the core original book of Proverbs was chapter 10 through the middle of 22, collected 
and written during the time of Solomon. And then over time, these other five collections of Proverbs got added onto the book. 1-1 one, one, then, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, might indicate that chapters 1 through 9 are also written by Solomon, but since 10-1 says the Proverbs of Solomon, I think 1-1 one, one is actually introducing the book as a whole. The whole book is the Proverbs of Solomon, since the bulk of the Proverbs come from Solomon himself, and he's certainly the most famous wise man named in the book. But Derek Kidner, among others, suggests that chapters 1 through 9 actually were written as an introduction to the book as a whole by the sages or scribes or wise men, whatever you want to call them, that ended up putting the whole book together in the time of Hezekiah or possibly even later. That's not a hill that I want to die on, that Solomon didn't write chapters 1 through 9, but I am persuaded of this view because it helps make sense of Solomon's own story. It's one of the big questions in the Bible. If Solomon wrote Proverbs and he was so wise, how did he die so foolish? 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. He spoke of trees. He also spoke of beasts, of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And peoples of all nations came to hear his wisdom. Okay, so he has this great renowned wisdom. But 1 Kings 11, at the end of Solomon's life, tells us, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was, his, was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father's David. So the basic question of Solomon's life then is how does this man who is so wise end up being so foolish? And I think Solomon's own life illustrates Proverbs 26.9. Like a thorn that goes up in the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Okay? Solomon has all the proverbs and yet he himself is like a fool. Solomon was exceedingly wise and understanding in the sense of collecting proverbs, engaging in this scientific investigations, but he ultimately loses sight of the basics, the fear of the Lord. And so Proverbs 1 through 9, these first nine chapters, stress the character and attitude that we need to be truly wise. If we're going to use the Proverbs from chapter 10 onward, well, we need to have this basic attitude. And in fact, you'll notice in these first nine chapters, there's, they're full of warnings to the young man about chasing after enticing women, Solomon's own downfall. So I think that's what's happening in these first nine chapters, is it's setting you up. How do you use the Proverbs of Solomon well? Here's how. The starting point is fear of the Lord. Okay, a lot more could be said about verse 1. But at this point, at this rate, you'll see we'll be in the middle of Proverbs in 2030 still. So we're going to keep moving along at a quicker clip now. Grammatically, verses 2 through 6 all hang on the word Proverbs in verse 1. Okay, this is the book of Proverbs. What are the Proverbs for? Well, they're in order to know wisdom and instruction, to understand, to receive instruction, to give prudence and knowledge, and paradoxically, in order to understand a proverb. In short, Proverbs offers wisdom. Proverbs offers wisdom. Verses 2 through 6, they all hang together, but verse 2 is the topic sentence, the thesis statement. 
The first part tells us what Proverbs can do for you. With Proverbs, you can know wisdom and instruction. And then the second part of verse 2 tells you what you can do with the Proverbs program. The end result is that you can understand words of insight. Verses 3 through 5 then unpack the first part, what it means to know wisdom and instruction. And verse 6 unpacks the second part, what it means to understand words of insight. Okay, I promise that's the end of grammar for now. We're going to keep moving along, not as historical in our mode. The beginning of verse 2 then is this basic statement about the point of the book of Proverbs, to know wisdom and instruction. Here's why we're spending some time in the book of Proverbs. Because we as a culture desperately need wisdom. We need wisdom. We have so much information and yet so little wisdom. At our fingertips, we can pull up any fact we want. We have all the facts, and yet where is understanding? Where is discernment? Where is wisdom? Let's reflect for just a moment on what we see around us. Reflect on our situation that we find ourselves in. We see two trends at least. You could probably think of more. First, how many of you have seen driving around yard signs that begin, science is real? Okay. We have a car that looks sort of like the Unabomber car or something that science is real is scrawled in big spray paint all over the back of it parked down the block from us. I, it, it seems deranged to me. It doesn't, it doesn't encourage me to take on their life view. How many times in the last two or three years have we heard, follow the science? Science provides us with knowledge, with information, but we need wisdom to know how to act on it. I heard uh, last year someone illustrated it this way. Knowledge, scientific knowledge, is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. But wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. Okay, do you, do you see there? You, you got the knowledge, but you need to have the wisdom to know how to use it. We've seen this illustrated so clearly through the COVID years. Scientists work tirelessly to understand the COVID virus, how it is transmitted, how it spreads in a community, various risk factors, and so on. And navigating that season with an informed response should take account of that scientific knowledge, but the scientific information alone doesn't lead to wisdom. It doesn't tell you personally what risks you should and shouldn't take. It doesn't take, I, looking at Craig, it doesn't tell a school district what risks you should and shouldn't take. There's all sorts of different values and needs that must be weighed against each other. To be totally clear, Christians should not oppose science. Solomon in his early years, as we've just seen, provides a model for engaging in the natural sciences to the glory of God. There will be tensions, but young folks, we need more Christians in the STEM fields. That's a good thing to pursue. And yet, examples abound of gifted scientists and engineers whose personal lives were messes because of their lack of wisdom. I don't need to call out names, but I'm sure you can think of your own of, uh, examples of, of gifted scientists who nevertheless can't keep a marriage together, uh, uh, alienate their coworkers. Okay, so that's one trend we see. We're just told follow the science as if that solves every problem, and yet we see we need wisdom to know what to do with the science. The other trend, though, we need to recognize that wisdom is more than morality. Okay, we can't simply decry the moral decay of society and think if people were only more moral, that would solve all of our problems. 
Again, to be clear, we should be moral. We should live by Scripture's ethical teachings. And yet wisdom is more than morals. It's more than simply being ethical. Let me illustrate what I'm saying here. The Bible tells us, as we read uh, in our offering verse, that we should work. That's a good thing to do. And biblical principles tell us that some jobs would be wrong to work at. Being a predatory lender, for example, would be an unethical job to have. Uh, Being a pornographer, something like that. These are unethical jobs, even if they're legal. Okay, we know we should work. We know there's a few jobs we shouldn't have. But how do we decide which career we should go into? Which job we should take? There's no command in Scripture that tells you be a farmer, be a plumber, be a banker. The Bible tells us that marriage is good, and there's commands about who we shouldn't marry. You know, don't marry someone that doesn't share your Christian faith. But that doesn't help us decide who we should marry, or if we should marry. What university should you attend? Is there any Scripture verse for that? I know Noah, Mary, you guys are weighing this out. Have you found a Bible verse telling you which university to go to? It would be convenient, but it's not there. How much time should you put in your studies? All of it? Every single waking moment? I mean, that's unrealistic for students. Parents, you know that this is one of the biggest struggles. When your child steps out of line, they misbehave, when do you correct and when do you cover it with love and just say, I'm going to let that go? Okay? It's one of the hard difficulties of parenting. Which investment should you make? How much overtime should you work? How new of a car should you buy? Should I plow my fields now or in a couple weeks, hoping it dries out? Okay, the Bible gives us commands that shape our general ethical framework, but in the nature of the case, there can't be uh, commands for all these decisions we have to make. And yet, in many of these cases, in all of these cases, a foolish decision can make a mess of our lives. A poor marriage can destroy your life. It's not unethical, it's not wrong, it's just a bad fit and it leads to hardship. Going into a career that you're ill-suited for, mismanaging money, parenting poorly, they can all be disastrous. We need knowledge, we need information, we need ethics and a moral framework, but we need something more than that to navigate life well. We need wisdom. And this is what the book of Proverbs offers. God gives us a whole book, a whole program for training in wisdom. What what is wisdom? The Hebrew word for wisdom basically refers to an ability, know-how. In Exodus, when the Israelites are building the tabernacle, the word wisdom is described as the, uh, for the craftsmen and women that have wisdom for making and weaving fabrics. They have the know-how for working with metals for building the tabernacle. In Ezekiel, uh, uh, it describes wise trading, the know-how in the marketplace, when to sell, when to buy. Uh, we had a family friend on Whidbey who, when he passed away, his brother-in-law at his memorial service said uh, uh, that he had an interesting investment strategy, that he always bought high and sold low. Okay? So a wise investor, you, uh, Ezekiel talks about wise trading. Uh, if you don't know, you buy low and sell high. That's the trick on, on <laughs> investing. Uh, in Proverbs, though, wisdom is not generally for specific tasks, but for life as a whole. So what is it? Wisdom is simply skill for life. Skill for life. Wisdom is skillful living. It's not abstract knowledge. 
You don't have to go take an SAT or something on wisdom. It's for daily life. It's, it's practical living. This initial section we're looking at unpacks wisdom for us with a number of synonyms. In verse 2, it also is called, uh, uh, you see the second part of verse 2, words of insight or perception, what we might call discernment. Wisdom includes the ability to see distinctions, to see different shades and nuances, to see possibilities, uh, potential options where others might only see one or two choices. Verse 4 refers to prudence, knowledge, and discretion. Wisdom includes this ability to plan ahead, to live strategically, to have foresight. Okay, if I behave in this way, what will be the end consequence? If I behave in this way, what's the end consequence? Verse 5 refers to learning and guidance. Wisdom provides guidance, direction when faced with decisions. Friends, contemporary Christians need wisdom. We especially need discernment. There is simply more information than ever before. Each day you're confronted with more information than your parents or grandparents perhaps even thought possible. Until the beginning of this century, there were only two or three TV channels available, and if you got your news from TV, the chances are your national news came from Peter Jennings, Dan Rathers, or Tom Brokaw. Everybody, however they voted, whatever they thought about the different issues, was all getting their news their information from the same sources. And these three and others like them are journalists who were held to journalistic standards. They could be sued for libel if they misrepresented things. But in the last quarter or the first quarter of the 21st century, now Americans statistically by and large get their news from cable news programs like CNN, CNBC, or Fox News. And I should be putting news in scare quotes because the headline cable news programs are actually categorized as editorials, not journalism. And so the host of these news programs have freedom to say what they want. They're not held to any journalistic standards. Okay, I went after the science is real signs a minute ago, so stick with me here. If I'm stepping on your toes, talk to me afterwards because my goal is not to alienate anyone. But in a recent court case, Tucker Carlson, the most watched cable news personality in the world, was sued for slander. And in 2020, his, argues, his lawyers argued, and I quote, the general tenor of the show should then inform a viewer that Carlson is not stating actual facts about the topics he discusses and is instead engaging in exaggeration and non-literal commentary. Given Mr. Carlson's reputation, any reasonable viewer arrives with an appropriate amount of skepticism about the statements he makes. But friends, this is the most watched cable news program in our country. Do we indeed bring an appropriate amount of skepticism or discernment? Again, I hate to beat up on one person, and if this is your person, uh, talk to me afterwards. We can repent, we can pray together. No, I'm just teasing, but... Uh, but I, I shouldn't be joking because this is actually quite serious. Carlson has recently in the last year started pushing the great replacement conspiracy theory, the view that there's a conspiracy to intentionally replace whites in the United States with foreign immigrants. And then last night an 18-year-old cited this conspiracy theory and killed 10 black shoppers in a grocery store in upstate New York. Okay, this is deadly serious. We need discernment. The problem is only exacerbated by social media. 
Okay, so you're saying, okay, it's not me. I don't do the cable news. I'm better than everybody else. I get my news from social media. Okay. Recent investigations found that 41% of polarizing posts on Twitter were actually generated by bots. You're getting upset about someone that's not even a real person. It's, a, it's, a, it's an AI, an algorithm somewhere, spewing out misinformation to get people worked up. Another recent investigation discovered a misinformation network that in 2020 was making 50,000 untrue posts a day or a week on Facebook about the 2020 elections. Okay, and social media is increasingly polarizing Christians along with society as a whole. And a lot of it is being driven by bots and intentional misinformation. And so we need wisdom to discern who to trust what to listen to, to evaluate when claims aren't lining up. We need wisdom. Verse 2 then closely links wisdom with instruction. And do you see that word instruction is repeated in verse 3? The term, uh, yes, instruction, but with strong accountability. And so I prefer something like training or discipline as a better translation. And in fact, the ESV elsewhere uses the word discipline to translate this term. And you'll see in your worship guide, I picked out a few of the other key verses from later in the book of Proverbs that talk about this idea of discipline. Whoever heeds discipline is on the path to life. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Whoever ignores discipline despises himself. Listen to advice and accept discipline. Now, this term discipline, uh, ESV, I think it translates it as, as instruction here because it's not negative. It's not, I guess people getting their knuckles wrapped in school, you know, discipline, that kind of a thing. Um, that's not what it's talking about here. Discipline is always used in Proverbs in a positive sense. It's for educational purpose. Okay? It's something that actually Proverbs calls us to love discipline. But Proverbs emphasizes up front the need for discipline in verses 2 and 3, and then in verse 8. It says, uh, hear my son, your father's instruction or discipline, because it's emphasizing to us that the path to wisdom is arduous. It takes work. Gaining wisdom is difficult and demanding. It takes discipline. The commentator Ellen Davis puts it this way, a wise adulthood must be paid for up front with a disciplined childhood. A wise adulthood is paid for up front with a disciplined childhood. But this, it's not simply something that parents can do to children. Discipline your children and everything's going to work out. The discipline or training must be internalized. It's a way of internalizing wisdom. So verse 3 says we must accept discipline. Verse 8 says we must listen to discipline. 12.1 says we must love discipline. 4.7 says we should prize discipline more than money and wealth. Okay, there's an internal disposition that we need here. And so we could paraphrase verse 2 as offering disciplined wisdom, a training course in wisdom. It's more than sporadic New Year's resolutions. Okay, it's a discipline, a way of life. Verse 3 then adds a character component. Okay, wisdom terminology in itself is ethically neutral. Famously, Genesis 3.1 says that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was more crafty 
than any other beast of the field. That term crafty in Genesis 3.1 is the same term translated by the ESV in Proverbs 1.4 as prudence right here, to give prudence to the simple. Well, Proverbs certainly is not saying we want the simple to become more like the serpent in the garden. Okay, that wouldn't make any sense. And so verse 3 emphasizes what kind of wisdom is being talked about here, what kind of wisdom we should grow in, in righteousness, justice, and equity. These are all relational terms. They concern how we relate to others. And so Proverbs offers wisdom that leads to a healthy community. There's a character component. Well, who is the book of Proverbs for? We've talked about the young and the simple, but who is it for? Verses 3 through 5 tell us. It's for students and for teachers. Okay, verse 3, it calls students to use the book of Proverbs to receive instruction or discipline. So if you're a student, take this on. But verse 4 says the book is for giving prudence to the simple. Okay, so students use Proverbs to acquire wisdom. Teachers, parents, grandparents, we use wisdom, or we use Proverbs to learn how to inculcate wisdom into those under our care. It teaches us how to shape the children in our care under wisdom. In verses 4 and 5, we see three types of people. Verse 4 says the simple. The simple gain prudence. In Proverbs, the simple is not, uh, you know, like simple in the head, something like that, kind of a euphemism that we use sometimes, or probably shouldn't use actually, but a, a, a euphemism that is used. In Proverbs, the simple is one who is at yet unshaped. They're undeveloped in their thinking, their moral purposes, their direction and character. And so the simple is open to either wisdom or folly. They're open to righteousness or wickedness. They need shaped and pulled in one direction or the other. And so the goal of Proverbs is to call them along the path to wisdom and righteousness, away from foolishness and wickedness. Then the second part of verse 4 refers to the youth. Proverbs presupposes that children are not born into the world wise and knowing everything they need to know. Children need to be formed. Their character needs to be shaped. They need to be taught the ways of wisdom. But then verse 5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in their learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Okay? So people who are already wise, who already have some level of understanding, are invited to come to the book of Proverbs, as it were, to a feast to gain further wisdom. So Proverbs is for the young, the old, it's for students, it's for teachers, it's for the simple and for the wise. In short, Proverbs is available for all, or is, is, is for all of us. Then let's move ahead to verse 7 here. Verse 7 is like a motto for the whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and discipline. Bruce Waltke refers to this verse as the basic spiritual grammar for understanding the book. It's the beginning, not in the sense that it's left behind. You know, uh, when you play Candyland, you start at the start and then you move ahead, right? You don't want to go back to the start. It's not like that, shoots and ladders, Candyland. I've played way more Candyland in my life than I ever wanted to. If, uh, anyway, so that's a whole other story, the trauma that comes from that. But anyways, uh, it's not the beginning in that sense. It's the first principle of wisdom. The alphabet is fundamental to reading. You never leave letters behind when you're reading. 
Okay, your scales, your musical notes, they're all essential to playing music. You don't leave scales behind. Numbers are essential for math, okay? You don't learn one through nine and then say, okay, I'm ready for some more math, let's get rid of the numbers now. You keep building on them. Likewise, the fear of the Lord is the first lesson of wisdom in the sense that everything else builds on it, hangs on it. The fear of the Lord is the alphabet of wisdom, the ABCs. What is the fear of the Lord then? It's not a method for gaining wisdom. You know, fear the Lord, do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll get wisdom. But rather, it's about a kind of relationship, a disposition we ought to have towards God. Derek Kidner says, the fear of the Lord is worshiping submission. Another commentator says, the fear of the Lord is respecting God as God. Ellen Davis again, to experience God's power and not feel some stirring of fear is spiritual numbness. And indeed, in Exodus 9, Moses diagnoses the Egyptians. After all these plagues have come until the last, they've seen God's power and yet they don't fear God. And that's what he says. He says, Pharaoh, you and your leaders do not fear God. You're spiritually numb. The best illustration I can think of is we visited Yellowstone last summer, and some tourists apparently are attracted to grizzlies but don't fear them like they should. Okay? Fear of the Lord is a bit like a fear of a grizzly. You, you want to see a grizzly. That's why you're in Yellowstone, right? And you want to see it as close as is safe, but you don't want to get too close because a grizzly will tear you apart. Right? It's a wild animal. Okay, it's the same thing with the bison. A bison can knock your car off the road and not even think twice about it. Okay? You want to see bison, that's why you go to Yellowstone, but you've got to be cautious, you've got to be careful. There needs to be some awe and respect for the power, the might of these animals. Well, a grizzly and a bison is only a, a, a poor image of the God who made them. Okay? the God who made all things. And so we need to fear the Lord. We need to stand in right relationship to him. Wisdom then depends on a right relationship with God. This then brings us to Christ. In Matthew, uh, the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus says to his disciples, the one who listens to my words and does them is like the wise man who builds his house upon a rock. Okay, as we're going to see as we go through the book of Proverbs, we need to fear the Lord, and that's where wisdom is founded, because the Lord made all things, the grizzly, the bison, the planet, the solar system, the universe, all things. And so we have to be in right relationship with him who made all things to understand the pattern of reality. And yet, as we know all too well, that pattern has been marred by sin. It's been twisted out of shape. It's like a car that's been in a fender bender and the frame's not quite right. And so to live wisely, to grow in wisdom, we need to fear the Lord. We need to be in the right relationship with him. As Christ says, that right relationship comes through Christ's work alone. That's what puts us in right relationship with God. And so Proverbs, if we're digging on this, it's going to confront our foolishness as much as our sin, it's going to challenge us to live wisely, prudently, but it doesn't mean we leave the gospel behind as if somehow we're going on to another stage. Fear of the Lord is nothing else than trust in Christ. It's the same relationship, the right relationship with God. It's saying, God, 
you are all powerful and it's only by you entering the world in your son Christ Jesus and putting things right. That's the only way I can stand in right relationship with you. And so everything that we talk about over the coming weeks builds on this fundamental truth. Fear of the Lord. We fear the Lord when we trust in his son Jesus Christ who come to put the pattern right to restore all things. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word from all sorts of different places, and I suspect that we are challenged at different points this morning. Some of us might recognize ourselves in this picture of the simple, someone who needs shaped. We realize that we go back and forth every time we hear a new opinion, and we need internalized wisdom and discipline. Lord, let us receive your discipline, your word, your wisdom. Others of us, Lord, realize how shaped we've been by these different cultural narratives. Maybe we look to science to provide all the answers. Or we're so focused on morals and moral decay that we forget about wise living and good decisions. Lord, I know myself and I know each person here is bombarded daily by different views, different opinions, different claims. And so we need your wisdom. James tells us if we lack wisdom, we can ask for it from you and you will give it to us. And so we ask, Lord, provide wisdom for us. As we begin this process of working through the book of Proverbs together, we ask that you would help us to learn this first lesson and never move beyond it. May we fear you. May we stand in awe before you. May we indeed, Lord, uh, submit in worship to you. May we receive you created all things. And may we come to your Son, Jesus Christ, our mediator, to have our relationship with you put right so that we can, learn, uh, we can begin to grow in wisdom as we're in right relationship with you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gift of wisdom. Thank you for your gift of the Proverbs. Amen.